not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nearly 10 years ago on my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. Today, I'm holding space for Matt Salis. Matt is the executive director of Stigma, which runs Shout Sobriety and Echoes of Recovery programs for people in recovery and their families. Together with his wife, Sherry, Matt wrote the book, Sober Evolution, which talks about recovery and marriage. So Matt joins us today to share his story and talk about his projects. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Well, thanks for having me, Jean. I appreciate being here. I'm glad you're here. I've enjoyed reading your book and hearing your story. It's always inspiring to talk with other people that are just passionate about helping people find their way and sharing their message. So I'm glad you're here today. Tell us about yourself. Tell us your story. I'd love to. Let me start by congratulating you on 10 years of not just sobriety, but of inspiration. It's, it's just great to, to hear your voice, you know, live directly one-to-one. And I, I've heard it so many times in the past and, and I'm so appreciative for all that you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't know how I'm going to celebrate, but you just had a soberversary. Did you do anything special to celebrate yours? No, you know, I'm not a day counter. I, so I'm at four years, but I'm not, I actually don't know exactly when mine is. It's in, it was in January or, or it is in January, but I'm not sure exactly, exactly the date. Just, just keep moving forward. That's kind of how I'm celebrating. Well, that's that's a celebration in its own right. Then you get to celebrate every day is an anniversary of another sober day, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Matt, I'm going to turn the mic over to you because I want our listeners to get to know you. Thank you very much. I, I don't know if I'm going to go back in time further than most of your guests, but but I start my path toward alcoholism when I was about five years old. Uh, Everything in my life at that time pointed toward alcohol as just this glorious panacea for all ills. It's the thing we used to celebrate. It's it was a sign of manliness in in my family. Everyone drank, but especially the men drank. It was a sign of prestige. I can remember when my father upgraded from Budweiser to Michelob sometime in my uh, adolescent period. But even at age five when my father would want a beer on the back porch on a Saturday afternoon and he'd send me in to get it. You know, if I could bring it back, if I could pull the, this is back when the pull tabs actually came all the way off, you know, the kind that get buried in the sand on the beach and you can cut your foot on them. Uh, If I pulled the pull tab all the way off and I returned the beer without spilling it or making it all foamy, I got a sip. So as far back as I can remember, alcohol was just a huge part of my life. In fact, in my book, I, I tell the story. I grew up in southern Indiana, and the Indianapolis 500 was like the mecca of all sporting events. 
And when I was five years old, my parents had tickets. They went every year and my mother was ill. My dad unexpectedly woke me up the morning of the race and got me out of bed. And, and I got to go to my first Indy 500 at age five. And on the way into the grandstands, we, we had to walk under part of the grandstands to get to our seats. Somebody spilled a beer, a full beer on my head, like almost like it was, you know, like on a television show, a, a pratfall kind of a thing. And I was soaked in Budweiser and then I baked in the sun all day. And I didn't mind one bit because that smell reminded me of my family, of my father. And so alcohol was just ingrained in me as a very positive thing. I never saw a negative aspect. My, my father drank every day, but he didn't drink to the point of you know drunken buffoonery. So I didn't have a negative connotation associated with alcohol. It was, it was all upside for me. So when high school, when I was in high school, I did like most people, I started experimenting, which involved going to parties where there would be alcohol. It involved siphoning some booze off of the many bottles in the liquor cabinet at home. I had a, a few just really good friends that w we would we would take what we could and sneak off into the woods and, and we would drink. And I mean, we just made horrible co uh, concoctions, mixing liquors that were just not designed to be mixed. But I always love the feeling. I know, I know for some people, they have to work into liking the feeling that alcohol gives them or, or work into liking the taste. But for me, it was, it was love at first sip. So then high school experimentation trans, translated or transferred into college just indoctrination. I was all in on the drinking culture when I got to college. In fact, I specifically remembered Early on in my freshman year, I was looking into possibly joining a fraternity. And as I got to know the different fraternities on campus, there was one where I, I had some connections. I had some friends already there, and it, it would have been an easier path to joining that fraternity than to joining others. But I found out from other people on campus that that fraternity had a reputation for a lot of heavy cocaine use. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I don't want any part of that. Cocaine's a drug. Cocaine's something to which you can get addicted. I guess some of those public service announcements from my youth, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, some of those PSAs from Nancy Reagan talking about don't do drugs and say no to drugs, I guess some of that got through. But what no one had ever told me in my adolescence was that alcohol is a drug and alcohol is addictive as well. I thought of alcoholics as the bums who sleep in the gutter. And since I had no intention of doing anything like that, I had no idea whatsoever that alcohol could hurt me. So I said no to the cocaine fraternity, but I found another one that was into he heavily into beer drinking. And I said, sign me up. That was the, the place for me. So, you know, the, the weekend, the, the drinking weekend in the fraternity and at my college campus started on Thursdays. We would, we would hit it pretty hard on Thursdays and then kind of have an easy, maybe guys only Friday night, and then back at it on Saturday, big time with the biggest party we could come up with. And then sipping beers on Sundays, maybe while we were watching football. But that's the weekend. But the drinking just, it, it went throughout the whole week. There were, uh, you know, different rituals. We would go to the library, maybe I'd go with a group of five or six guys, and we would kind of pretend to study, we'd open our books, and then talk quietly to each other or or try to find the floor on the library that had the prettiest girls. Uh, so, so nothing even, you know, close to an academic pursuit. 
And then when we decided time was up after an hour or so, we'd go back and feel quite proud of ourselves for our studying. And we, well, we had to celebrate that pride with some beers while we watched TV, even on you know Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday evening. So quickly, alcohol became you know the center of my universe. The academic side was just an annoyance, a necessary evil, if you will. And throughout all of these activities, this this learning about alcohol and, and weaving it into my life in high school and in college, there was a consistent theme that I chose to ignore until much, much later in my in my drinking life and even in my sober life. And that was the impact that alcohol was having on the relationships in my life, specifically the romantic relationships. I had a high school girlfriend that I had some of the nastiest, most unimaginable fights with at parties in high school when we would be drinking. I would say things that I I just couldn't even dream of saying had I been sober. And that continued in college, whether it was girlfriends or or, or just friends of mine that I was close with, I, I found that I would cross the line of civility more often than, you know, I'm proud to admit. And but but it just never dawned on me. I, oh, I, I was drunk. That was drunken behavior. Everybody does that. I'm fine. It never occurred to me that that association between the alcohol and the behavior was was a, a much greater concern than I was letting on about it. I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people dismiss their drunken buffoonery as no big deal and later regret the impact that they've had on the relationships in their lives. So also, that's certainly a theme I'll come back to because it it tracked th- throughout my drinking life. But getting back to my story and kind of the timeline, I graduated from college. I, I love to tell people I had a 2.99 grade point average. Of course, for interviews or any time that my grade point average is important for something I'm pursuing, I, I report that as a 3.0, a solid B average. But I think the 2.99 is very telling. It's It's just emblematic of how Clearly, I was an underachiever. I mean, if I had tried even just a little bit, Gene, uh, that could have been a, quite a bit better grade point average. But the 2.99 always makes me chuckle, just a little subpar of where I could have been. And that's all thanks to my, thanks to my commitment to alcohol. So after college, uh, I got a job. My, my senior year in college, girlfriend and I moved away together. We moved 800 miles across the Midwest. And I started a job in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, worked for a big company, and I just started following in the footsteps of my father and my grandfather doing what they had always done. And that means coming home after work and loosening my tie and pouring a drink before I even you know, changed my clothes. And I would have a couple, two or three cocktails every evening. And for me, that was normal. But this is where the impact on our relationship really started to set in. For my now wife and my at the time live-in girlfriend, it just it didn't make sense that I felt the need to drink alone every evening. She would still drink with me on the weekends. We would we were young. We didn't have kids. We're in our early twenties. We would go out and party and and drink to excess for sure. But the drinking during the week started to really cause a rift in our relationship. I was convinced because of what I had grown up with that it was one hundred percent normal, and she was equally convinced that drinking by yourself on a daily basis was going to have negative impacts. And as it turns out, she was the one that was right. So then eventually, we, with my job, we moved around, around the upper Midwest a few times, and eventually we started having kids. And that is when 
the divergence in the way we approached alcohol and the relationship was really evident. Once we started to have kids, my wife did the normal thing and matured and put her role as caretaker and mother above all else and recognized the need for one or both of us to be sober in case something should happen in the evening with our firstborn child. And I had no such thoughts whatsoever. I just kept the party rolling, daily drinking, daily cocktails after work, and then drinking to excess on the weekends. And that started to take a serious toll on our our relationship, on my marriage. We started arguing pretty consistently. The fights got, you know, more and more vile and regrettable. And what's interesting about the impact alcohol has on relationships, on marriage, is that it affects both sides. Even though my wife wasn't drinking, she would get dragged into these disgusting arguments and she would go there too. I mean, she really kind of had no choice, at least not one that she understood at the time. So she would say awful things that she would regret. She would raise her voice to, to match mine. So it's just, it's fascinating to me how alcohol impacts not only the drinker, but the people around the drinker. It really has a, an impact on how they conduct their lives and how they say things that they, they later end up regretting. So that continued uh, my, we, as we all know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. So my drinking progressed. Uh, a two drinks after work started to not be enough and I needed three. I, I stopped putting a mixer and I started drinking straight whiskey on the rocks and straight vodka on the rocks. I would drink beer on the weekends, but instead of drinking two or three or three or four Bud Lights, I started drinking IPAs, which had a higher alcohol content. And I started drinking six or eight or or 12 or more of them. And I looked for any excuse I could find for us to go out and socialize because I knew that the the spotlight was less on how much I was drinking if we were out on a social event at a social occasion. So my wife became less and less of a drinker, partially because of just the maturation process and taking her role as mother very seriously, and partially because of how disgusted she began to to be at, at my drinking and what alcohol was doing to our marriage. So the progression continued, and it started to involve my mental health as well, my anxiety started to really ramp up. My depression started to really ramp up. And of course, you know, I I didn't know any better. So I did the only thing I knew to do when I was anxious, I would drink alcohol because that would soothe the anxiety. And when I would wake up severely depressed, I would drink alcohol at first, not in the mornings. I still tried to adhere to what I consider to be social norms. I would go through the workday and drink in the evening, but go through the workday and just excruciating pain from the depression and anxiety. And what I didn't know that I do know now is that the alcohol was the driving factor in the anxiety and the depression. Certainly people can have anxiety and depression that's completely clear and not related or not driven solely by the alcohol, but that's like a smoldering fire and then alcohol is pouring lighter fluid on it. Uh, For me, the anxiety and depression had not manifest prior earlier in my my childhood or my adolescence before I started drinking. And the alcohol was the sole contributing factor to the severe anxiety and depression. So there were times along the way where I attempted sobriety. I, I consider my period of true alcoholism when I tripped over that invisible line into addiction to be a 10-year period, my last 10 years drinking. 
And there was no doctor's diagnosis that that started the clock on that 10-year period. The way I frame it is the 10 years started the first time I tried and failed to get sober. And that was when my daughter was five years old and I eventually got to permanent sobriety when my daughter was 15. So I had a 10-year period of stops and starts. I had three periods of relatively long-term sobriety in that 10 years. Twice I made it to six months sober and once I made it to nine months. And all three times when I relapsed, it, for me, it, it wasn't this like kind of emergency, this trigger happens and temptation overwhelms me, which I know is, is very common. But for me, it was more like a well-thought-out decision to return to drinking. And the reason I would make those, that decision was because you know even at six months and even at nine months sober, I was still just really depressed. There was no joy in my life, things that should bring me joy. My my favorite, you know, sports team winning something or my kids coming home from school with a good grade or a kiss from my wife. It was just everything felt flat and gray and cold and sad. And so I thought if, if this is as good as it's going to get, because believe me, when I made it to six months sober and especially when I made it to nine months, I thought that is all the repair that's going to happen in my cranium. And if, if it's not getting any better than this, I might as well drink because at least drinking brings me some pleasure, whereas the rest of life was bringing me none. And it wasn't until I eventually made it you know, into this permanent sobriety and I read and I learned about brain chemistry that I realized it takes more than six months. It takes more than nine months to fix the neurotransmitters that are re responsible for pleasure in our brains. And so, like, for instance, that time I did make it to nine months, I was close. You know, if I had just gone a few more months, I probably would have would have started to feel the joy that would have kept me going in long-term sobriety, which is what eventually happened after, after the 10 years. A big part of my story, you know, the, the worst of my drinking was not at the very end. A couple of years before I got sober, when, you know, I, I was, my drinking was the most out of control, I started to really try to rein it in. I got really scared. And at my wife's insistence and encouragement, I did everything I could to try to control alcohol. So I had a period of time during that active phase of alcoholism when I was trying to put rules around my drinking, which is another, I think, very common thing among, among those of us who, um, who fall into addiction to alcohol. I, I did things like I'll only drink on the weekends or I'm not going to drink any hard alcohol. I'm only going to drink beer and wine. Or one of my favorites is I'm going to drink a glass of water between every alcoholic beverage to dilute the alcohol. And I, I just, I still got as drunk as I always had been. I just spent a lot of time in front of the toilet. So that was not a successful strategy. But I, I tried all these rules. And, and what that did for me was it, it made it so that my most out of control, my most, you know, diabolical and despicable performance was not at the end of my drinking, but what all the drinking rules did not do, they didn't fix anything. They didn't solve my problem. I, I, alcoholism is a progressive disease and it wins every time. And so even though, you know, I was exerting some control over the quantity I was drinking, I, my brain was just getting sicker and sicker to the point where at the end, my, my biggest kind of mental switch happened uh, on Sunday nights for me every week. I would drink pretty uh, unrestrained over the weekend. And then the transition from Sunday night into Monday, the, any joy that I felt from the drinking turned to just 
really debilitating depression and sadness and anxiety to the point where I could barely get out of bed on Mondays. And toward the end, I did start to drink on Monday mornings. Occasionally, I would get kind of the bare minimum required of me done work-wise, and then I would I would hit the vodka bottle to find some relief. And so things like that, the, the fact that my my rules that I was putting around the drinking, they weren't working. And the fact that I was actually drinking in the morning on a, on a work day, uh, that those really hit me and were eye-opening experiences and made me realize I was in more trouble than I realized. But I've got a therapist friend, and he says all the time that people only make significant change in their lives when they're in enough pain. And the pain that I'm talking about can't be in pain that they're inflicting, can't be pain that they're inflicting on others. It has to be the pain that they're feeling themselves. And so in order for me to get sober, I had to actually get to the point where I couldn't get out of bed in the morning and the depression was so overwhelming that I didn't want to live. I do make the distinction between the point I got to and, and suicidal thoughts. I never thought about taking my life, but if 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 I had just not woken up, I thought that would be better for myself and my family. I was definitely to a point of of not having a will to live. And so that's when I decided to get sober. For me, Alcoholics Anonymous was not an option, and it's just because of the misperception, the, the very common misperception that's out there about a bunch of sad people sitting on cold metal folding chairs in a church basement and smoking cigarettes and drinking bad coffee and eating donuts and whining to each other about their lot in life. And I just didn't identify with that. I've since come to have a great deal of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and the literally millions of lives that have been saved through through that practice. But at the time, I, I just was, I didn't know enough. And I just took the, you know, my cues from, from what society told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was not going there under any circumstances. I also couldn't do a 30-day inpatient because my wife and I owned our own business and we were very active participants in our business. And had I just disappeared off the map for 30 days, the business would have would have failed for sure. I, I couldn't find any way around that. So for me, it, it was a very alternative course to sobriety. I started reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. About 75% of what I read was memoir. Things like Caroline Knapp's Drinking a Love Story and Sarah Heppel's Blackout. Those are, those are my two favorites um, of all time, the memoirs from alcoholics who'd come before me and had found recovery. And I just connected with those stories so deeply. They were so personal to me that, that that served as the form of connection that I needed early on in my sobriety to keep going and, and stay committed to not drinking. But I also needed another piece. The other remaining percent of what I read was clinical. I wanted to learn about brain chemistry. I wanted to understand the disease that had taken over my life. So I read things like Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, and I learned about those neurotransmitters. I learned about the power of the subconscious mind, and that had a huge impact on me. So not only did I have people that I could relate to and relate to their stories, but I also had a narrative that made sense. I could understand how and why this happened to me. And I also understood the solution. So I just kept exploring and learning. For me, a, a friend of mine said, said this the other day. She said, the word recovery isn't the right word. It's discovery. That's what we're in. We're in discovery. And that fits so well for me. It's not enough for me to just not drink. I want to grow and become a better person and learn. And so I'm, I'm constantly still to this day 
trying to find out what's the next thing I can learn about life without alcohol. What's the next thing I can learn about growing to be a better person? And that exploration, that discovery has just served me so well. I've learned a ton about addiction nutrition, about the fact that the foods that we eat can impact those neurotransmitters and cause the healing to happen faster. I've learned a lot um, reluctantly, right? But I've learned a lot about emotional maturity and the need for patience and the importance of not going back out into the alcohol-soaked world uh, brazenly until until we're healthy, until we're healthy enough to do so. I'm at a point now, Gene, where I can go to any party with any amount of alcohol, and there is no temptation for me. But early on, that whole first year of sobriety, that was not the case. And so, as I mentioned earlier, when I had times where I had extended sobriety before I made it over that that long-term hump, there were many times where I would go to parties and just be miserable because people were drinking around me. And although I told them it's fine, it's fine, it doesn't bother me, it was killing me inside. So I learned about patience and the importance of, you know, giving our brain time to heal. And all of that, when I looked back and said, you know, I've learned all these lessons, they are different. They're not better, they're not worse, but they're different than the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. I really need to share what I've learned with the world because I'm sure there are other high-functioning alcoholics out there that share my misperception about AA and deserve to heal. And so I started writing about uh, my experiences and my alcoholism, my active alcoholism and my recovery. And I started a blog called Sober and Unashamed, and I started writing there. And from there, just just things started to develop. The the readers would kind of drive me in one direction or in the other. And that brings me back to the relationship side of things that I talked about earlier. Every time I would write about my marriage and the destruction that alcohol caused in my relationship, the feedback I would get would just go through the roof. And I realized there's just not a lot of people writing about this. And eventually my wife joined me and she started being part of the conversation because something very interesting happened when I got sober. I thought sobriety would fix everything in my marriage. And sobriety actually made things much, much worse. It turns out my wife had gotten accustomed to the devil that she knew in the alcoholic husband that she had and the sober husband that she was trying to learn to get to know. uh, That was not smooth sailing. And while I wanted to wash my hands of everything, say I'm sorry and move on, there was resentment, there was broken trust, there was a complete lack of intimacy. My wife was not in any way interested in me, attracted to me. That's not to say that the sex stopped because my wife and I did continue to have loveless sex in our marriage. And that actually did more damage than than had we just abstained from sex altogether. So sobriety yielded all kinds of painful stuff for us to learn to deal with in our marriage. And there just isn't a lot out there on that topic. So the more we talked about it through our podcast, the Untoxicated podcast, the more I wrote about it, on the blog, the more feedback we got from from listeners and readers, the more I became convinced that th- this is the direction we needed to go to talk about the damage alcohol does, not even alcohol addiction, but alcohol does on our relationships. And eventually that yielded the book that we published on September 23rd of this last year of 2020 called Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. And so, you know, for me, this this is about two things. It's about my sobriety. It's about being open about sobriety and how impactful that is, not only on the people around us, but on our own recovery. When we're open about it, 
you know, if I changed my mind today, Gene, and decided I was going to go back and start drinking again, who would drink with me? My, my friends aren't heathens. They've read the stuff I've written. They've heard the stories I've told. They know that I can't drink. So there's no option for me to return to drinking. And that's all thanks to my, my openness about my sobriety. I'm glad that it helps other people as well. But the true blessing is that it prevents me from ever even considering going back and returning to drinking. And so that's one of the messages of the book. The other big message of the book is about the relationship recovery side and all the work that has to happen to put the pieces back together and find joy in our marriages again. And so the, the book has, you know, also morphed into, we, we lead two recovery programs. One is called Shout Sobriety, and that's for high-functioning alcoholics and early sobriety for whom Alcoholics Anonymous is not a good fit, or maybe they need something in addition to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we provide that. We provide a different form of connection. We provide a really science-based approach to sobriety, talking about things like neurotransmitters and the subconscious mind and recovery nutrition. And then the other program that we've started is called Echoes of Recovery. And that is a place of connection for the loved ones of alcoholics who, as I've said a few times now, are just as impacted by the drinking of the person they love as the person who's drinking is. And that's just something that we don't pay enough attention to. And there's not enough help for the people who are, are suffering in silence as the people who, who love us alcoholics. And so that's what Sober Evolution is all about. That's what the programs we run are all about. And I just, I thank you so much for, for bringing awareness to this and letting me come on the bubble hour and talk about it, Gene. Well, thank you for sharing. One of the things you wrote that really stuck with me related to the cycle of relapse that you were stuck in. And you wrote that alcoholism had carved out a chunk of your soul. And when you lived without alcohol, you kind of had to go with a big hollow spot until something healthy grew in its place. And it was in that interim, you know, the discomfort that that caused was where you kept relapsing. And that imagery really stuck with me. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how people that are stuck in that quit, start, quit, start cycle can survive that period of discomfort and really get some footing? Well, I think the two, for me, the two answers to that dilemma are patience and connection. We need connection, whether whether somebody agrees with the 12 steps or not, whether they feel like addiction recovery is a spiritual endeavor or, or like me, I, I'm a very spiritual person, but, but I, I think of addiction recovery in a more science-based way and, and less as a spiritual thing, spiritual practice. Regardless of the 12 steps, the connection that is um, presented in Alcoholics Anonymous, that fellowship that can be found in many different ways in many different places, but it's 100% essential. And for me, the connection started through reading these books by these authors that they don't know who I am. I mean, I have since met Sarah Heppola, but at the time she had no idea who I was. Caroline Knapp had been dead for 20 years when I read her book. I felt like they were my best friends. I mean, I felt like they were people I could really confide in. And so finding connection with people that have a shared um, dilemma that they're facing is super important. People who say that they can do this on their own, I respectfully disagree. I, I, it, it doesn't mean you have to you have to join a formal program, but you have to find a way to connect to others that share the same situation. And then the other piece of it is that patience. I mean, 
I, when people ask me questions, I, my answer is about patients so often that I think people think I'm just saying patients because I don't really have anything else to say. But the answer is patients so often. The, the brain chemistry rewiring that I talked about, I mean, that takes a year plus. There's scientific studies that prove that now. So this idea um, that we can just be tough and muscle our way through, it's just not the case. We have to give ourselves... I, I, sometimes this imagery maybe is not the most appealing, but I describe it as pretend like you had a motorcycle accident when you were wearing shorts and a t-shirt and, and a helmet, you know, you're going to make it, but there's a lot of road rash that's going to take a long time to recover from. And so for me, that's what, that's what the process of healing is all about. Having the connection to realize you're not alone and having the patience to wait it out until things start to reverse in your brain. You know, that reminds me of a, a light bulb moment I had on, I think it was my first, perhaps my second soberversary, when a good friend of mine gave me a box of chocolate covered strawberries and a card that said, you get to have fun discovering new pleasures. And I thought, wow, how come she figured that out? And I didn't. I mean, it was really, uh. I thought that is what recovery is. And you said, you know, we're in discovery as much as we're in recovery. I love that idea. And, um, but it, it does take time because we train ourselves oh, year after year after year to only focus on one form of pleasure, which is alcohol. That's right. And it's physically addictive. So you know, there's, there's layers of addiction there. So I, I totally agree with you on that. And I think it's so important, but patience doesn't just mean waiting out the discomfort, then it means we have to take an active role in creating new pleasures. And can you talk a little bit about some of that? What are some of the, the new ways that you find joy in your life and light up those pleasure reward circuitries in your brain? Well, absolutely. Uh, writing is the first one that comes to mind. I've wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. And I, when I was in that phase of active addiction, when I would go back and forth between sobriety and drinking, when I was sober, I would think, oh, this is it. This is what I need to write about. And I would start, I would start writing and it would just light me up. And then when I would start drinking again, I would say, gosh, what can I write about? I, I don't know what I could write about. And, and I would, you know, hit this kind of doldrums in the pursuit of writing. I also, I coach high school soccer and that has taken on a whole new meaning for me in sobriety. The, the dopamine kick I get when one of the kids like gets something that they were struggling with or, you know, just the, the smiles on their faces or, you know, if, if there's something we've been working on that hasn't been going well and all of a sudden it clicks, that, that has been a shock to me because I've done this for decades now. And when, when drinking was controlling the release of dopamine in my brain, I wouldn't get this kind of joy from coaching that I, that I get now. But all the little things came back too, you know, like hugging my wife in the morning when she first gets up or making breakfast for my kids or just, you know, them coming home with a report card full of A's. This is stuff that's supposed to make us feel good. Not, not great, not over the moon, but there's supposed to be some reaction to that. And during my drinking days, there was none. And it's so nice to be back in a healthy place where I can feel that again. You really grieved the loss of your identity um, that you so strongly equated masculinity and, and your entire persona with being a drinking person. And you write about just feeling so lost without that element of your persona. 
And as you told your story too, you talked about the, you know, the example of masculinity that your father or grandfather set for you in that way. So what, if, if someone is looking to you now as an example of masculinity, a man, a father, an individual, how do you define that now in the absence of that drinking persona? The persona is real. I'm glad you brought that up. It is a big deal. Not only did I associate drinking with masculinity, but I associated what I drank with my identity. I drank IPAs because I liked the, you know, the, the high alcohol bitter beverages. When I when I drank liquor, I drank whiskey on the rocks because I liked it to burn on its way down. I mean, that very much was a part of it for me. A huge part of finding permanent sobriety for me is changing my view on alcohol. And what I mean by that, a lot of people in sobriety consider themselves to have an allergy to alcohol. They know that it's it's something that is off limits for them, but they they think that it's fine for the rest of society, the people that are, you know, the quote normal drinkers or the the people that have it under control. Somewhere along the lines through my reading and research and learning about how alcohol impacts our brains and our biology, the rest of our bodies as well, you know, it it really got ingrained in me that alcohol is a poison in any quantity. So if you're drinking one or two drinks a day and you think you've got life licked, I'm here to tell you you're doing damage to your brain. You're not doing as much damage as I was doing, but you're not living life to the fullest. And so when I made the transition, and it wasn't quick, it wasn't easy. I don't mean to make it sound like something you can just snap your fingers and you're there. But over long term and a lot of work and thinking about this and writing about it, when I made the transition from thinking of alcohol as something that's off limits for me, but okay for everyone else, to thinking of it as a a toxic thing that's really not meant for human consumption, and and that's true, alcohol is not meant for human consumption um, based on what it does to our brains and bodies. That was a huge aha moment for me. So I realized I, I am being the best father I can be. I am being the best husband I can be. I am being the best you know, citizen I can be. Not, not because I have a weakness and, and I can't do something that other people can do, but because I've recognized that alcohol is a poison and a, you know, it's really toxic to our society and I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. So that, that was huge for me to, to, to feel proud as I stood there with my bubbly water you know, at an event where everyone else is is drinking alcohol, and rather than be a little bit jealous of them, but know that I couldn't partake, that transition to me um, feeling a little bit sorry for them. Mm. I can't I can't say that strongly enough how important that is. I don't have to say it out loud. I don't have to tell someone that's drinking across from me, oh, you know, you pathetic fool, you don't know what you're doing. But it, but that being part of my mindset, it helps me have pride in all in my decisions moving forward, and erases any kind of jealousy that I might feel or any kind of lingering trigger that might be there or craving. It's huge for long-term sobriety. It strikes me as something that we often say as kind of a recovery vernacular that normies are people who drink normally. And a few years ago, I started flipping that script and saying, you know, alcohol is addictive. So drinking it without engaging in an addiction cycle is abnormal. So those of us that found ourselves addicted to it. We're the normal ones. That's what happens when you engage with an addictive substance. If you started smoking, you'd say, don't start smoking. You'll get hooked on those cigarettes. Don't start using crystal meth. It's hugely addictive. And we have this romantic fantasy that 
somehow there's a normal way to use alcohol that doesn't engage in its negative health impacts. And that's just simply not true. So I love the idea of breaking that narrative. I have to tell you, I'm in Canada. And here our Surgeon General a couple of years ago took the stance that there is no safe amount of alcohol. It's a known carcinogen. And as it relates to cancer, there is no safe amount to consume. And that was a very big stand. I feel like that that didn't get enough noise globally that our Surgeon General has that guideline because it's it's enormous but no one wants to hear it (laughs) it's a hard message to share absolutely but gene i think that's the direction we're going i i look at this very much like you know we're we're we have to take the roadmap from what happened with big tobacco back in the 60s in in the early 1960s 40 percent of americans smoked cigarettes and you know today, fifteen percent of Americans smoke cigarettes, and it's all an education campaign. It isn't about prohibition; it's about you know making people aware of what's going on out there. And right now, in the United States, seventy percent of Americans drink alcohol on a regular basis. And you know, part of my lifelong goal, uh, which it, you know, it's it, I will be one of the actors. There's going to be a lot of people that have got to be pushing in the same direction. But one of my goals is to create the sober majority where less than 50% of people drink alcohol. And the, the science is there for that. The, it's just a matter of getting the word out. We've got a huge, we've got two big problems, right? We've got a huge cultural thing we've got to break. And the money that big alcohol has is probably tenfold what big tobacco had to, to beat us down and fight that off. But I think that's the direction it's going, and your Surgeon General should be applauded for being a leader in what's going to be inevitable. I firmly believe it's going to be an inevitable thing. It's just a matter of time. Mm, that'll be interesting to watch that unfold. I want to ask you about connections, and you you talk about reading books as the sort of gateway to making connections and starting to hear our stories echoed in others. Blogging was also an important way for you to connect with others through feedback and comments and interaction. What about in-person connections? Do you find a way to sit down with other people in recovery? And and has that felt different and impactful and important for you? I do. What is really interesting about my journey in sobriety is how my relationships have changed. When I first came out as an alcoholic in recovery, I, I I did so in kind of a big bang kind of way. I went from this is such a private thing I don't want anyone to know to I sent an email to everyone on you know that I had ever collected their email address. And at the time, as I mentioned, my wife and I owned a small business. We had a large email list. Well, it seemed large to us anyway. We had three thousand people on an email list, um, and we sent to everyone on the list that I was a high functioning alcoholic. Now in one year of sobriety, I was one year in when I sent the email. And it had an immediate impact on my relationship. I expected negativity from some people, my drinking buddies, for instance. I got none of that. I got support all the way around, which made my decision to be vulnerable. It was just really rewarding to that decision. It made me feel very confident to keep going with that vulnerability. But what? But you know, inevitably, some of those relationships—the drinking buddies, as I mentioned, neighbors, friends, people we knew through church—that we you know, socialized with. Some of those relationships did fall off because we just, the one thing that we had in common, drinking alcohol, went away. But there wasn't a lot of sadness. There wasn't a lot of mourning or grief around losing those relationships because the most amazing thing happened. Other relationships 
took took the place of those relationships and they were much more deep and meaningful. I had people, so many people come to me and say, hey, I, you've talked openly about your struggles with alcohol. I want to talk to you about my struggles with alcohol, or I want to talk to you about my, my spouse that had struggles with alcohol or my father and how I grew up in this environment. And I went from having these superficial relationships where you talk about politics and you talk about sports and you talk about your family vacation in the summer to having these really deep and meaningful relationships. There were Maybe there were fewer of them than the superficial ones, but they were so much more important to me. And it even transcended alcohol. I had people who had battled cancer say, hey, if you're willing to talk openly about your alcohol, let me, let me talk to you about what I went through that I, I've kept somewhat private. Um, marital issues, issues with children, you name it. It didn't have to be the same exact uh, thing, but by being vulnerable and being willing to talk about my stuff, other people were willing to talk about theirs. And so I've got these friendships now from places I never expected them with people that I've known for 20 years and I just used to do the wave and the nod to. And now they're like some of my best friends. These, these relationships I wouldn't give up for the world. And um, that connection is, it's just so important, not only to them, but to me, just to, to keep going and feeling good about what I'm doing and, and the decisions I'm making. And it's just a motivator that is kind of indescribable. Many people find that their marriage can undermine their recovery attempts because their spouse is a drinker who keeps pulling them back into the drinking lifestyle. You talk about your marriage having sort of contorted itself around your addiction. And although your wife wasn't an active addiction, she sort of constructed the support network to hold your family together around your addiction. And so when you started to heal, it was necessary for your marriage to heal as well. And uh, of course, your wife had traumas related to your drinking that you weren't aware of because you were drunk. She wasn't. (laughs) Can you talk about the importance of recovery impacting the marriage and and that the whole marriage has to sort of be healed and and restructured whether that partner is also in active addiction or not yeah right off the top i can say that i am a firm believer that love and alcohol especially abusively consumed alcohol they just can't coexist and so i i don't have a level of expertise when it comes to one spouse in the marriage gets sober and the other one stays drinking and drinking heavily and how that can work. I don't, I I'm familiar with many, many cases where that's what happened. I'm not familiar with a single one where that can work successfully. So I am a believer that the alcohol needs to leave the marriage for the repair to happen. Now I will say that there are three components to the recovery process as, as best as I can understand it through not only my own marriage, but the people that we work with the the drinker if if there is primarily one drinker as was the case with us the drinker needs to find sobriety and find recovery and that's the one that everyone knows about the marriage recovering the marriage is an entirely different process and the third piece of it is the the spouse needs to find recovery as well the spouse needs to learn to detach from alcohol and find their own form of healing if the spouse just sweeps it under the rug and tries to move on those resentments are going to linger and they're going to fester and they're going to 
they're going to pop up at the most inopportune times and the, the most unnavigatable ways. So everyone needs to do their own recovery in a, in a relationship, in a marriage. And for my wife, it took years before she realized that before. And I didn't realize it either before we got her the help that she needed to address, you know, her own uh, codependency and her own pushing down of, of these years of resentments. But when it comes to repairing the the marriage, not only did my wife need help and I needed help and they, and they look very different. That's the other thing about it, Gene. As someone in early recovery from alcohol addiction, I had to go a million miles an hour towards sobriety. I had to read everything I could, learn everything I could. Everything was full speed ahead. For the spouse in a relationship like that, she had to be very cautious. She had heard, had heard all this before. She couldn't let her defenses down and just assume that because I said so, I was permanently sober. That That's not how it works. So her recovery is much more gradual on an individual basis because she has to protect herself. She has to keep the constructs that she's created to protect her and the kids in place until she has a higher degree of confidence that I'm going to make it. And then the relationship recovery, there is a cycle to it. There, there are things we have to do. We have to address the resentments. I've said so many times the amends process is insufficient. It's not enough to say I'm sorry. I've said I'm sorry a million times at this point. I have to sit there and listen to the details of the the most terrible instances. Like you said, when I was drunk and I didn't have a memory, I had to listen to exactly what I did, exactly what I said, and exactly how that made my wife feel, and occasionally exactly how that impacted our children. And I had to own part of it. I had to acknowledge it. Because just saying I'm sorry and wanting to move on, that is, there's no, there's no restorative behavior there. That's not helping the spouse in a relationship like this. I had to carry some of the pain for her. I had to feel as badly about those situations as she did. And so that's the resentments. We went through all the resentments. Slowly, we tried to build trust, which takes a long time. And I additionally, I spoke earlier about intimacy. We, we are still, I'm four years sober, and we're still working on bringing intimacy back in the relationship. And we have to separate sex from intimacy. They're two different things. We continued to have sex, but there was nothing loving about it. There was no closeness. There was no building of trust and, and building of togetherness. It was a, you know, kind of a disgusting act for a long time. And recovering and repairing from that ha has been a hard and long process. Um, but it's one of the necessary components, the resentments, the trust and the intimacy all have to be addressed kind of in progression in that order. Hmm. I always think it takes so much more time for family members too, because we do all this internal prep work, all those stages of change we go through internally before we're ready to take action and change our lives. And then we want everyone around us to just hop mm, on board, yes. you know, but they, they're supposed to suddenly uh, accept our changes that we're embracing without having had privy to all of the internal work we did to get there. So patience is so important while we let other people adjust to this new version of ourselves. And as you said, build trust. And we earn trust over time through repeated behavior. There's no fast track to that. There's no right. way to do that quickly. And that's so, so interesting. So then are those the basic pillars of echoes of recovery? And I have a question about resentment. So when I think about the traditional way of talking about resentments in recovery, which 
comes from the, the AA model, the 12-step model, where you examine your resentments and then you examine your role in your resentments. What did I do? What's my role in this resentment? And you back the truck up that way. For the partner of someone in recovery, I suspect that the healing of resentments is a different process. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I'm a big believer, this this might be an un- unpopular sentiment, but I'm a big believer that we need to put more focus on blaming the alcohol and not blaming either of the individuals that are involved. And the reason I kind of came to this, this was another light bulb moment for me, was once I was about a year into my recovery, I realized I'm not suppressing the desire to call my wife evil names anymore. I'm I'm not holding back a feeling of hatred or anger or frustration about the decisions that my wife is making. Those things have just gone away. They they aren't part of me anymore. And so I realized that was the alcohol. You know, people think of alcohol as a truth serum. And to an extent, that's true. I, I don't deny that. We say things when we're drinking that we would otherwise keep secret. But then it, it morphs way past that. And we say vile things that we would never say. And we don't think and we don't believe in our hearts. We're just being mean for meanness sake. And so when I think about the resentments, and this, this is the process that my wife and I have used and, and what we use in Echoes of Recovery, we talk about let's put the blame on the alcohol. That person that you met 20 years ago that was charming and witty and lovely and, and you grew to love and trust, that person's still in there. And it's the alcohol that has warped them into this person that you, that's vile and you don't want to be around anymore. And if we can get that healing to take place so that we we get that person that, that's hiding deep down under their back, the person that you love, um, and we put the blame at the feet of alcohol, that, that's, that's a really, really important part of this process. And that, be, besides being honest and talking through the resentments, the instances that happen, being specific, no matter how hurtful it is, owning you know, what happened and agreeing that what happened is what really happened. And it's, it's not just a, a, you know, one person's memory that differs from the others. Um, that's huge. But, but then taking all that blame and laying it right at the feet of the alcohol that's no longer in the relationship. For me, that's a huge and a very important part of the process. Mm-hmm. Where do you suggest that people start? For anyone who's listening, who is feeling ready to go, ready to make a big change, and today's the day, where to start? So for me, you know, bibliotherapy, which is the fancy way of ta- saying reading, that was, that was just, that was where I started. That was what moved me in the direction, you know, that I'm, I'm continue, continuing to be on right now today. So I recommend books like Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, Caroline Knapp's Drinking a Love Story, Sarah Heppel's Blackout. But I also, of course, I recommend Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage, uh, our book that my wife and I released September 23rd. Because there's so much shame and blame and stigma associated with having a a drinking issue, um, as much as I am all for recovering out loud and being open about it, we've got to we've got to start you know quietly and privately to some extent. And so reading and learning is is just a great way to get your feet wet and realize that you're not alone, and it propels people to go find the connection they need to to find the health that they deserve. How can our listeners find you, find your blog, find your book, find your program? So there's a bunch of different websites. I would point people towards soberevolution.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. 
So we do have the .org extension. Besides, the .com was too expensive. So SoberEvolution.org, um, that brings you to our book page. But from there, you can link to our different programs, our blog, our podcast. Every You can find everything from that spot. Awesome. Matt Salas, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations to you and your wife, Sherry, on the work that you're doing and on the life that you're living together. Thank you for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me on your awesome podcast, Gene. I really, really appreciate it. And, and I, I hope we run into each other and keep working together down the road. Me too. And listeners, if you would like to connect with Matt, you can reach him at his website, SoberEvolution.org. And you can also find him on Facebook. Check the show notes for all the links. I'll pop them all there, as well as the resources we talked about today. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time. own it i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity not looking for excuses i just want to be free from the power weakness had on me in a dark corner is where shame strong just cause you'll keep it on the side it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride turn the light on turn the light on you can shine when you see old i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity i'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power. Just want to